This episode of Check the Locks is brought to you by our friends at Audible. Audible is your one-stop shop for audio entertainment where you can always find the best of what you love or discover something new. That's right. Audible offers an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre, from mysteries, thrillers, biographies, and of course, true crime. And as an Audible member, you can choose one title a month from their catalog to keep forever, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. Audible members also get access to thousands of podcasts from popular favorites, exclusive new series, and this very podcast you're listening to now. Plus, the Audible app makes it easy to listen anytime, anywhere. While traveling, working out, walking the dog, doing chores, Audible makes listening anywhere easy. And best of all, Check the Locks listeners can try Audible for free for 30 days. So head over to audibletrial.com slash checkthelocks or click the link in the show notes to start enjoying Audible today. Warning, Check the Locks podcast is a true crime podcast and may contain graphic descriptions of violence, murder, sexual assault, and more. Check the Locks podcast is not appropriate for all listeners. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Welcome back to Check the Locks Presents True Crime for the short on time. As always, I'm John Connor. I'm Olivia Cornu. Saying thank you for joining us this week as we dive into yet another truly terrifying bite-sized true crime case. Before we get started, Olivia, as always, it's wonderful to see you. How are you doing? How have you been? I'm doing really good. It's been a great week. Happy to be here. How are you? Feeling better? Still got the Rona? I don't have the Rona anymore. I'm still working on this ear infection, but doing a little bit better. I do want to just, again, give a preemptive thank you for dealing with me as we go through this episode. I know that I'm sounding a little nasally, a little stuffed up, uh, so I'm going to try to sound as much like a human being as possible as we get through the story. Luckily, the last episode was your episode, and I didn't have to do much talking this short on time. Thankfully, it's a short on time. It's not as detailed as I normally go, so hopefully that will spare our listeners some of the Hey Arnold congestion, you know what I mean? So really going to work Brainy. hard on not trying to sound like that. Brainy. Brainy is right. That's right. Well, this week is my week, and I know this is a short on time episode, so we'll cut the banner, the chit chat. We'll kind of jump right in. I had never heard about this case before, and I was really excited to talk to you about it and to hear what our listeners think. And I did want to give a really big shout out to a podcast that I'm a huge fan of. They're called The Horror Virgin. You can listen to them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your shows. I've talked about it before, but I'm a huge fan of horror films. And so I listen to this podcast every week. They come out on Mondays just like we do. So listen to our show and then check out the horror version if you're going to listen to the podcast, right? But for those who aren't familiar, one of the hosts who he was actually a guest on the John Versations podcast, he hates horror films. So his friends have him watch horror films and then they talk about them. And it is one of the best podcasts out there. And they recently did an episode uh, about a film and they mentioned this case in that episode. And I never heard about it. And I dug into it a little bit deeper and thought it would be really, really cool to kind of jump into it, talk about it, because I found it really, really fascinating. So I don't know about you, but are you cool with just kind of jumping in? Yeah, let's go. Awesome. So we are, again, going back in time. 
This has kind of been my theme over the last couple of weeks, but on December 26, 1973, the world was introduced to what has become known as one of the scariest films of all time, William Friedkin's The Exorcist. Have you ever seen The Exorcist? I've seen bits and pieces of The Exorcist, but I couldn't tell you that I've seen it start to finish. And if I have, I don't remember. I get the general concept. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, I saw it in 2000, which I would have been a freshman in high school, but they re-released the director's cut and they put it back in theaters. And I remember going with my high school girlfriend to see it my freshman year. But the film starred Linda Blair as Reagan McNeil, a young girl who becomes possessed by an ancient demon. Now, at the time, it was a smashing success, but it did receive backlash from audiences and critics alike. In fact, when the film was released, people claimed that it caused fainting, vomiting, and even heart attacks in the movie theaters. Now, in the 70s, a much more significant percentage of the population was religious. In fact, there was a poll that was done in 1972 that showed only 5% of Americans at the time had no religious identification. Additionally, roughly 60% of the population actually identified as Roman Catholic. So a film about possession, demons, and priests would more than likely be upsetting. Now, just like you were talking about, Olivia, over the years, The Exorcist has become ingrained in the culture and has inspired an entire genre of films. Since the movie's release, the rumor that production was cursed has actually become cultural folklore. In fact, televangelist Billy Graham said there is a power of evil in the film, in the fabric of the film itself. But perhaps the most terrifying thing about the film involved an extra in the background. Now, for those who may not be familiar with the movie, the synopsis is basically as follows. When young Reagan, played by Linda Blair, starts acting odd, levitating, speaking in tongues, her worried mother, played by Ellen Burstyn, seeks medical help only to hit a dead end. Jason Miller plays a local priest who thinks that the girl may be seized by the devil. The priest makes a request to perform an exorcism and the church sends an expert played by Max von Sydow to help with a difficult job. So what we're going to be focusing on today is the scenes where Reagan's mother seeks that medical attention. So is this going to be the scene that I have seen where she's like on the bed? No. So in the movie, before that happens, they send her to the hospital. Okay. And in the hospital, she gets things like a spinal tap done. They're running different tests on her to kind of determine like, okay, this odd behavior has got to be caused by something medical. Okay. And then once they kind of hit a wall with that, they're like, I don't know, maybe she's possessed and they send her home. Okay. Now, as we just discussed in the film, Reagan undergoes several medical tests, including a carotid angiography procedure. Director William Friedkin filmed these famous scenes at the New York Medical Center in 1972. Now, at the time, Friedrich was looking to capture a real sense of being in a hospital and decided to use an actual neuropsychiatric surgeon and his team to shoot the scenes. Among this team was the surgeon's assistant and x-ray technician, Paul Bateson. Bateson was born on August 24, 1940, and he grew up in Lansdale, Pennsylvania. He joined the army and was stationed in Germany in the early 1960s. During that time, Bateson developed a drinking problem, but became sober when he was discharged from the army and returned home to Pennsylvania. In 1964, Bateson moved to New York and started a relationship with a man. The pair would host parties at their home and would spend weekends at Fire Island off of Long Island. During this period, Bateson began working at the New York Medical Center, where he was known for his calming bedside manner. 
The couple's relationship was affected by Bateson's heavy drinking, and they eventually split in 1973, at which point he moved to Borough Park in Brooklyn. In 1975, Bateson was fired from his job at the hospital when excessive drinking became an issue. He then took a series of menial jobs like cleaning and working as a cashier at a porn theater. Bateson also started attending AA meetings, and around that time, he moved to Greenwich Village. Then, between 1977 and 1978, the gay community in New York began to feel a sense of terror. Remains of male victims who had been mutilated and dismembered began washing up on the shores of the Hudson River. The remains had been wrapped in black trash bags, and six of these bags had been discovered, some on the Jersey Shore and others near the World Trade Center. Police were able to trace articles of clothing back to a shop in Greenwich Village that catered to the LGBT community. However, Police lacked the victim's identity and a confirmed cause of death. Because of this, these crimes were not classified as homicides, but CUPPIs, Circumstances Undetermined Pending Police Investigation. So I want to stop right there before we go any further and kind of pick your brain, because when I was doing my research, all I could help but think is that like at this time in history, you know, obviously there's things like Stonewall that occurred and, and mm-hmm. things of that nature, but it wasn't very safe. And your rights weren't protected if you were a member of that LGBTQ community, you know? Um, So I just kind of wanted to see what you were thinking or if this invoked any thoughts as we were going through the story. I don't really have any crazy thoughts um, about it, but I'm just like really kind of fascinated by it. I vaguely recall hearing about this. And so this is just really fascinating to me. So I'm just really kind of just listening. It's a cool story. Yeah, I thought so too. As I was going through, I was like, man, I don't know how I never heard about this before. So. Now, on September 14, 1977, Variety film reporter Addison Verrill was found dead inside his apartment. Verrill had been severely beaten and stabbed. However, police found no sign of forced entry, and in fact, beer cans and used glasses were discovered in the living room. Now, Verrill was a known regular at Greenwich Village gay clubs. On the night of his death, a witness reported seeing him at a club called Mineshaft, which was a leather bar at around 6 a.m. Now, eight days later, Verrill's friend and fellow reporter Arthur Bell received a phone call at his home. Bell was a gay rights activist and had recently written a story for the Village Voice about the six bag murders, and he also believed that his friend may have fallen victim to the same killer. The man on the other end of the phone claimed to be Verrill's killer and told Bell that his article needed to be corrected. He told Bell that he liked the story in his writing, but contrary to the article, he was not a psychopath. The caller then began to provide Bell with details of the events that had taken place on the night Verrill died. According to the man, he and Verrill had met at Badlands, another bar in the area. Verrill bought the man a drink, and they continued to take drugs and drink until around 3 a.m., and at that point, that is when they headed to Mineshaft. Then the caller stated that they left for Verrill's apartment, where they continued to drink and then engaged in sex. According to the caller, at some point, he realized that Verrill only wanted sex and not a relationship. He said, quote, I decided to do something I'd never done before. I needed money and I hated the rejection. The caller then said that he hit Verrill over the head with a heavy pan. He then took a kitchen knife and began to stab him. At that point, he took Verrill's passport, $57 in cash, credit cards and clothing and left the apartment. The caller used the cash to spend the following day continuing to drink. At this point, Bell immediately contacted the police and shared the details of the phone call. Police were intrigued because the caller shared details about the murder that hadn't been released to the public, so they knew the mystery man had to in fact be the killer. 
Now, even stranger, at around 11 p.m. the same night, Bell received yet another phone call. The voice on the other end seemed different from the first caller, and this man identified himself as Mitch. Mitch then told Bell he knew who killed his friend, Addison Verrill. The name the caller provided was Paul Bateson. According to Mitch, he had met Bateson at St. Vincent's Hospital a few months prior when they were both in detox for alcoholism. Mitch shared that Bateson had called him earlier in the evening and confessed to the murder. Again, Bell shared the information with the police and they immediately headed to the apartment of Paul Bateson. When they arrived, they found Bateson very drunk. He confessed on the spot and was arrested for the murder of Addison Verrill. Before his trial, Bateson's attorney argued that his confession should be thrown out as he was drunk at the time and claimed that he wasn't read his rights. However, the argument was dismissed and the trial began in 1979. At that point, Arthur Bell's article was entered into evidence and a friend of Bateson's, Richard Ryan, shared with police that Bateson had confessed to the six bag murders. On March 5th, 1979, Bateson was convicted for the murder of Addison Verrill. During his sentencing, the prosecutor called Bateson a psychopath. At this point, Bateson was sentenced to 20 years to life in prison and was transferred to Staten Island to serve his sentence. He was released from Arthur Kill Correctional Facility in August of 2003 at the age of 63 years old. Bateson served his parole and promptly disappeared. He is now, however, believed to be dead. To this day, the six men in the bags are still classified as an unsolved case and their bodies have never been identified. That's a really cool story. I mean, I hate to say like murdering people is cool, but like this is kind of like it's just weird. It's just a weird coincidence. Um, I hate hearing now that the six men aren't identified and like their cases are unsolved. But I mean, it seems like he's the one that did it. But then if he was truly a psychopath, I feel like he would have killed others and not just like disappear when he got released. Yeah, I think that's a really good question. And one thing that I did find in my research is that Arthur Bell, along with William Friedkin, who was the director of The Exorcist, they both interviewed him in prison. And Arthur Bell said that in that interview, Bateson said that being in prison was actually a good thing for him because it forced him to kick alcohol and get clean. And I mean, obviously the man had some underlying demons, mental health issues. And I know that, you know, we've done enough cases where you start adding alcohol to that. You are not taking care of it. You're not addressing those things like that just lets those monsters come out, I think, even easier. So I really don't know if, you know, years of being sober, if maybe when he got out, that's why he didn't commit any other crimes or if it was simply like, I don't want to go back to jail. You know what I mean? Like I just spent a huge portion of my life. So like I'm out now. I'm just going to live what little life I have left because he was 63 in 2003. So, I mean, odds are he's long gone by now. Yeah. And William Friedkin, who directed The Exorcist, he actually asked him what it was like to be in that film. And he responded by saying that it was kind of like a F you to his dad who wouldn't let him go to the movies when he was younger. And he would make him stay home and listen to the opera on the radio. So getting to be in this, not only this movie, but this movie that was like a huge, huge success and very controversial. And like he is very clearly shown on screen. Did they say who like discovered, like who put two and two together? Like I'm sure the guy was on the credits, but like no one reads the credits. I should be on a credit for a movie that I was an extra in. Like nobody reads that. I think there are just some people out there that 
you know, are really into film. They're film buffs. They like study the cast. I'm sure that when he got arrested looking into his background, they found that he was in the film, you know? I mean, I Um, guess it would be just like us researching and going down these rabbit holes, but. Right. And William Friedkin actually wrote a movie about him that came out a few years later. It was called Cruisin' starring Al Pacino. That was loosely based on his story. So, just really interesting. I had never heard about it. You know, I've, I've heard all about the film set being possessed. You know, Linda Blair, I think was like 11 or 12. She was really young. And in one of the scenes, she's in a harness and they pull her and she actually breaks her back as a child and they have to like pause filming and all that stuff. So I had heard all that folklore around it, but I had no idea about the serial killer that was associated with it. So I thought it was just an interesting story and, and, wanted to see again what you thought and what the listeners thought. So, well, John, I thought this was really cool. It was a really interesting story. Kind of crazy to put like the exorcist and like a serial killer and someone who's been described as a psychopath that just happens to be in the background, you know, tying in that story together. So that was really cool. Yeah, I thought so too. And I mean, if we were going to talk deadbolt test, I have a feeling this isn't going to be super high on yours, but I was just kind of curious, where would you put this one? If we're talking about the murders that he committed and if he did kill this person that he was just like out with having a good time, that's kind of scary. And then if he truly is the person who is responsible for the six bag murders, then that's even scarier. So if that was the case, I'd, I'd score it a little bit higher. But I think just with this being just kind of a coincidence story and, you know, not really diving too much into who this person really is. I'd say I give it about a three on the deadbolt test as far as scariness. But cool factor, it's a ten. Yeah, I'm actually right there with you. I think for me, I am probably going to put this at a, I'm going to say maybe a four. I think we're kind of aligned in the reason why. I think there is something very disturbing about the fact that whether you're gay or straight or lesbian or non-binary or however you identify, right? There is something scary about the idea of being out at a bar and you meet somebody and you think you're hitting it off. One thing leads to another and you feel comfortable enough to invite this person back to your house and then... By the time you find out what this person is actually capable of, it is way too late. So I think Mm -hmm. that is where I would probably put it at that, that four. I am well out of that game. I'm not worried about anything like that happening to me, you know, so I'm not really like, oh man, I hope I don't bump into a serial killer when I'm out trying to pick people up at the bar. You know what I mean? (laughs) But I mean, some of us are still doing that, John. Right. I, I understand that. And if you're in a leather bar, I would ask you to be very safe. (laughs) Don't attend those. (laughs) Each their own, just not my thing. Right. But I think that's why I would put it as a four. Again, being right there with you, I think interesting factor and just the coincidence of him being in this movie and this movie being this big cultural phenomenon and then him being tied to this. I thought that was really, really interesting. So I'm going to put it a solid four. All right. Well, good job. It was a good week. I like this little short on time. Me too. And that is where we fall on the deadbolt test for this week's episode. But we want to know where does the exorcist and the serial killer fall on your deadbolt test? You can let us know. Reach out to us on Instagram at check the locks pod. You can find us on Twitter at check the locks. And if you're not in our Facebook group, do yourself a favor, come hang out with us. We would love to get to know you, get to hang out with you. It would be absolutely awesome. If you are interested in financially supporting check the locks, as always, you can do that by heading over to patreon.com forward slash check the locks. We have a lot of great tiers, stickers, T-shirts, exclusive coffee mugs, all sorts of stuff just for supporting the show. So if you want to help us keep the lights on, you like what we're doing, that is a great way to financially support us. And if you cannot financially support the show, 
We totally understand just listening and hanging out with us every week means just as much, if not more. So if you're taking the time, you're hanging out with us, you're sharing the show with your friends and family. Thank you from the bottom of our heart. That means the world to us. And again, you know, just helping us to grow our community and get in front of as many people as we can. So that is all that we have for this week's episode. But please make sure you are subscribed to check the locks on your favorite podcast app so that you never miss an episode. We will see you again next week with a brand new, truly terrifying, bite-sized true crime case. But until then, don't forget to check the locks. See you again next week. Bye.